Thank you, Leslie and Paul, once again, for all the help you guys are. Let's take our Bibles uh, this morning and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, as we look at the beginning, if you will, of the church, even though it's taken us several weeks to continue on with that, it really comes to its level of fruition now. We've come to the point of where the people, 3,000 have been added. We had 120 original believers, if you will, that came from Nazareth particularly. And if you think about this for a moment, it, it would have to be a little bit overwhelming. Jesus has given the command, he's passing the baton. That's what we found in Acts chapter 1. Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, is now giving us the Gospel of, I'm sorry, the, the book of Acts, which literally is that bridge. If you went from John to Romans, you would be like, what in the world happened here? Acts is that book that really ties things together. And Luke is giving us in, in Acts um, all of this unfolding of the church, beginning of it. And, and you think about that. For, so Jesus has ministered, worked miracles and wonders and signs for three years. And at the end of that, literally, you ready, guys? He's got 120 converts. The Messiah, the King of kings, the Master, the Lord, the Creator of all things. He's got 120 people following him. That's it. And then he says to them, I want you to go canvas the entire earth, and I want you to make disciples and finish the job. <laughs> that would seem overwhelming, right? I mean, you, you work three years and you've got 120 total. What are we supposed to do? We're not anything close to your caliber or classification. But you see, he had said in John chapter 17, I've got to leave so the Holy Spirit, the Comfort, can come, that he'll be guiding you in all truth. And literally, as Peter gave that sermon at the day of the Feast of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the 120. You see things rocking and rolling? That's what we're going to read about right now. We'll continue in Acts chapter 2 at verse... I think what we should do is... Uh, let's start in verse 37. We covered this last week. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, these that had heard Peter's sermon, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. May God add a special blessing reading of his word. Let's just pause for prayer before our studies this morning. Father God, thank you for a beautiful day that you've given to us. Thank you for those that have gathered here because we want to in unison praise and uplift your name and worship and this song. Father, you've heard our prayer requests as Paul has led us congregationally. And Father, now as we go to the Word, the truth, literally the foundation of our lives and of the entire, of everything, 
honestly, Father. And we would ask that you would use these words to change our hearts, our lives, and do it through the gift that literally Jesus spoke of as he left. That's the Holy Spirit. We would ask that the Holy Spirit exclusively would be our teacher today, taking us through the word of truth. Father, those that have come today, there are also, I'm sure, many needs, uh, things that they may not even know of that are happening. For, Father, you know them before they do. But thank you for being a God of, of everything that is needed. For all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. Father, we know that not all things are good, but, Father, you can use them all for the good. Thank you for being that sovereign, outrageously awesome God. It's to you we pray. It's to you we lift our voice. It's to you now that we would ask that you would unfold the scriptures for us so that we could see you even more clearly than we did just moments before. We rest in you at your feet humbly bowing in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Well, here we are, and uh, it's been uh, quite a journey for those. I'm thinking of those 120, uh, his mother. Jesus' mother is included in the 120. I just like to continue to recognize that, that she... And his brothers, which they thought he was a loser, right? I mean, I could go through the Gospels and they thought, Jesus is whacked. He's, he's got an insane problem. There's something really weird about him, right? Well, I'll tell you what. After Jesus appeared to James, his brother, after he was dead, after, can you imagine Mary? She didn't even go home, right? They're still in Jerusalem. In fact, none of those people went home. Isn't that interesting? All those 120, most of them were from Nazareth. That was their home country. They never went home. They stayed there for these 50 days. Jesus said to stay in Jerusalem. Now, he had met with the disciples shortly. I want to make sure that we get that right. Out in Galilee, remember Peter said, I'm going to go back to fishing. I've had enough. That Jesus is dead. It's over. There's nothing more to come back for. I'm going to go back to what I've always done, and that's fishing. And then my favorite story, they fish all night long. They get zero. There's a guy on the beach. What are you, what are you, what are you fishing out there? Throw it on the other side. Sure, okay, we did that too, didn't we? And you know what, just like Jesus said, couldn't even even get them all in. That's what happens when Jesus is in touch, isn't it? It's amazing what he does, what he can do. Jesus Christ is fully and completely in charge at all moments. So this one, this Jesus, now has died, is resurrected, and he's been just showing up in various places. And now here we are, Feast of Pentecost. Larry, were you able to find that map that has kind of that, where all of those people came from, from abroad? Yeah, awesome. Okay. So if, uh, if you think about this, this, this is what's going to be important for us as we think about, um, hidden it from ourselves again, that's okay. So if, if you were in chapter one and you talked about all these other places, because they were speaking in tongues, languages, and that's what it is. It's known languages. So these various places in Gentile world, you would have Cappadocia, uh, Galatia, uh, Bithynia, uh, Thrace, Macedonia. Um, I'm thinking of some other ones here. But if you, if you go through that, it lists the whole thing. And you can tell it's literally a known world. And all of, these has come to Jeru- the, all of these have come to Jerusalem for this moment. They're here for the Feast of Pentecost. And they've probably been in town for a while. They are blown away that we have these 11 disciples, which are just fishermen, okay, that are just fishermen, that literally, uh, 
are now speaking in tongues, languages, that they understood. They've never heard the wonders, wonderful works of God in a Gentile language. This is brand new. This is brand new. Anytime when we looked at the Old Testament, when we went through that, if they were speaking in a language of a foreign language, it was always in the sense of judgment. <laughs> and to hear the wonderful works of God in from the scriptures in another language, languages, was mind-blowing. And we heard this massive hurricane-like type wind sound. It wasn't a hurricane, but it was a sound like, and they all come running. And they hear these languages, and then Peter lets loose. And we've been through the passage of Scripture. And now we know that 3,000 have been saved as a result of that. But what I want you to do now is, what's going to happen to these 3,000 that have trusted Christ? One of the things we spoke of last week is the sense of baptism and its regards to salvation. It's a result of salvation, if you will. It's something that's happened internally. The external is to take the genuineness of what I've said I've done. I'm willing to, in public, externally, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the one that was hated through Jerusalem. He was crucified 50 days before. He was not a popular guy. If you're going to say the, the number one most important valuable guy in this year would be not Jesus Christ. Right? I mean, he was not. He, kept, he was killed. Now, these people, these 3,000 have taken a stand. And in fact, they gladly, I, I said it with enunciation today, they gladly received the message and were baptized. They've taken a stand. Now, let's just suppose that you were one of those that had traveled from Cappadocia, okay? And you've come and you're living in Jerusalem for the feast. Now, that's not uncommon for you to have taken a, a house or something that, you know, because I'm going to tell you, you do not have enough super sixes in Jerusalem for all of these by these people coming and traveling. There's not. There's probably a million people in Jerusalem for these feasts. So um, they didn't leave the, <laughs> the light on for you. It's not super six, but, but there's houses around. Sorry, I couldn't leave that out. Uh, Tom Baudet, he would say that. I left the light on for you. But at any rate, so we're in Jerusalem, and these 3,000 may have been staying in, in various homes. You know what? It probably didn't take too long because Jerusalem is a, a city that is filled with Judaism, right? That's not Jesus right now. That's not popular. I would wonder if you wouldn't be asked to move on since you've taken a stand for Jesus. You've publicly, t- and that's, I'm convinced, why it was said to, be, to repent and be baptized. Because of the salvation. Because it's, you stood out. There was no question about what was going to happen to you now. If you're, if you're willing to do that, it wasn't just, yeah, I believe, and I'll believe silently, quietly. And this is easily done today even, isn't it? It happens. But on that day, if you're in Jerusalem, you, you, were, you, were, you were out. You had a, I don't want to say a red mark on you. It was the real deal. That will come in handy as we think about that as we continue forward. So what is this going to look like? What is this new body going to look like? We have... 3,120 now that are part of this new group. Started with 120, 3,000 been added. That sounds like rapid growth. Who's in charge here? How's it going to work? Uh, what is this all about? Does it sound convoluted? Does it sound challenging? How long is this going to last? Can you imagine the scoffers on the outside? <laughs> what a joke. I mean, that'll be over in a couple of weeks, right? They don't, they don't have, who, the 11 disciples are going to lead this thing? Are you kidding me? They're just, they're, they're, Jesus was killed 50 days ago. He's a loser. How could these 11 carry it on? Are you getting the picture? 
<laughs> this, is, this is a go-nowhere thing. No one's bothered by it. Well, <laughs> when the Holy Spirit is the strength and the power behind it, it's amazing what can happen. We're going to talk about some things. Now, last week, we still have some notes left, actually. We talked about literally the four things that took place. We're going to talk about a little different light today, that this new body, this church that began in Jerusalem, um, they were a worshiping group. Uh, they were one that was very, very in, involved in instruction, the teaching of the, the apostles' doctrine, uh, fellowship, or koinonia, and then evangelism. Those four things we're going to talk about a little from the light, but it certainly makes, as we saw last week, the, the, the acrostic or the acronym, a wife. What could be a better wife for or a bride for Jesus Christ, ultimately, than those four things in a body that is growing, that he has passed the baton on to be all that it could be? So the first thing we want to talk about, what would be one thing that was absolutely imperative? And because this is the beginning of the church of, you know, you're here today in this building. Now, this building is not the church. It became the church today when you guys got here. Okay? Before you got here, this was a building on a ranch. When you got here, the body of Christ, the church, is here. The local assembly is here. So we have things to learn from this being its inception over 2,000 years ago. So what's the first thing that we could say that actually happened? And we're going to talk about content. The content of this beginning body, this church, was the fact that we're all saved people. You probably never thought of it that way. There's not a church that I would know of anywhere. I mean, I, I would be guessing too as well, but most churches today would... And at least in attendance on a Sunday morning, um, could be many unsaved. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in the sense of governance, of leadership, of whatever, I'll tell you right now, there is no mixing there. The redeemed, those that have been justified, those that have trusted Christ as Savior, them and them only, literally, should be at the helm of leadership within the church. Uh, the joining of the unsaved and the saved together, that would be like Satan and God working together. I think we can do it, right, Satan? We can work together. No, of course not. You can't even stick that in your head, can you? It's so, it's so abhorrent. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Let's go there for a moment. It actually fits in a lot of different uh, contexts. I, I used it even, I think it was the last couple of days. But uh, let's look here for a moment. <clears throat> this is very key. It can be in relationships, it can be in business, it can be uh, in, in a lot of ways, particularly false teaching, which probably had its bearing here. What did I just tell you to do? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right? In verse 14. 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Let's go there. Now, Paul is speaking uh, here particularly in its context to false teachers and making sure that they are separate from the body. And he, there's no place for false teaching within the body of Christ. Uh, but it also would rely around other things. Let's, let's take a look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord or togetherness hath Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Now, that, that's, that's strong language. But it's very key in the sense of the component of a church as well. We could talk about that in, in marriage. We could talk about that in business relationships. That has an acros, acrostic in the sense of principle in a lot of ways. Okay? It's very important that we, that we keep that in mind. The church's content was 3,120 believers that made up its entirety. 
That's fantastic because they truly are in fellowship not only with Jesus Christ, they're in fellowship with one another. That word fellowship or koinonia, we'll be talking about that later, it has to do with a partnership. And when you trust Christ as Savior, you are justified, redeemed, and have become a partner, if you will, with Jesus Christ. That can never be broken. And you're also in partnership or fellowship with other believers. Now, if you sin, you lose joy, right? That's what happens. Even in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Brethren, you would have more joy when you walk with Christ in the fellowship. So here we have a group that's 100% believers. Now, that's hard to believe, isn't it? Because Satan, is, he, has, he has worked diligently from that moment on to infiltrate and to engage and to somehow thwart and get inside the church. Now, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 2 because we're going to find one of those that literally was laden with Satan's activities. Revelation chapter 2, and uh, it'll be the church of Pergamos. We'll start in verse 12. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan seated. And that's a tough place to be a church, isn't it? That's a tough place. And actually, let's for a moment, I'm just thinking about this as I'm saying it, but in Jerusalem, where would be a tough place to have the church of Jesus Christ? In Jerusalem. That's a really rough spot, isn't it? In fact, again, I'm convinced that's why Paul, I'm sorry, Peter would have said, repent and be baptized. Lay it out in the public. Let everybody know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know if I want to go that far, right? They're all in. They're all in now. But let's go back to, I'm, I'm going to go back to Re- Revelation. You're already there. Uh, this is where Satan sees in this city of Pergamos. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelt. In fact, there was someone previously that had taken a stand to the point of literally being a martyr because of his faith in Jesus Christ. In this place that Satan is living large. But now watch. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you because thou hast, who's speaking these words, by the way, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus Christ. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Okay, now, if we were going to do a full study on that, we'd go back to, like, Numbers chapters 22 through 25. And you would see that Balaam was this prophet, sort of a prophet. I wouldn't even say that. He's sort of a prophet. He was not himself even short of compromise in a lot of ways. His relationship with God was marred at best. In the sense of his level of understanding, his donkey was more tuned into God than he was. Now, let's think about that for a moment, but not too long. So here's a guy that's very estranged from God himself. But he was used by this Balak, which was the king of Moab. And Moab was scared to death of the Israelites. And he said, I want you to curse them. Well, upon coming, he couldn't curse them. He could take his money, but he couldn't curse them, right? And he said, I really can't even take your money. I I can't do this, but I got a plan. And you know, one of the key ways to thwart the Christian community of the Christian church is somehow to get compromise within the church. 
If you can get the church to compromise, you're going to achieve a lot of good if you're Satan. And I'm talking good, quotes from his standpoint. And so essentially, he said, I'll tell you what you need to do. This is what you do, Mr. Do, Mr. Balak or King Balak. I want you to go ahead and get some of your women, and I want you to go over and seduce the Israeli men. They'll get married, and then you'll be amazed how you can twist their minds. And if you doubt that, think of our dear friend Solomon, the wisest fool that ever lived. What the wise? Yeah, he was, because he was the wisest man, but he allowed relationships to literally askew his future. Everything he was was done foolishly because of his relationships with heathen women. And he had a couple, 100 times three, right? It was crazy. In fact, I forget, I always turn him around. He had 700 wives, 900 concubines, or was it the other way? 700 wives. 700, oh, 300. Okay, I, got, I was over the top. I was over the porcupines, yeah. <laughs> Seven, that's, uh, they'd have been, he'd have been better off if they were porcupines. But 700 wives, I, I don't think you can comprehend that. And then it was done originally the first. Now, think of this. It's the same deal. It's not in my notes, but it's the same exact thing. It takes Solomon's first out of the ordinary wife. What was it? It was a relationship between making peace with her father. So what would be better than for me to marry her, his daughter, to kind of bring daddy and me? I mean, who's going to take your son-in-law out? Well, Saul. don't go with that too late. That's exactly right. Saul would. But by and large, it would seem to make a lot of sense. And if it worked once, let's do it again, and 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 again. Guess what's happening in Solomon's mind in his life? Compromise. That's exactly what's happening to the church at Pergamos. They were indoctrinated by the very thing, this doctrine of Balaam, that they were intermarrying with non-believers. They were committing fornication. It was going to the level of, we don't even know to what depth, because we find that with the Nicolaitans, which is another, another doctrine they were following, it must have been incredibly, I mean, just wretched, over the top. But guess where this all started? It's the very thing that happens in churches today. Compromise. Compromise. Now, let's be careful here now. Am I saying, Larry, are you saying that every person in this room right now should be a Christian? Well, it would be our hopes, but we also understand that you should be inviting people to come to a worship service of which they can see Jesus Christ pronounced, proclaimed, and glorified, literally, and showing them that they have a need for this Jesus. They're welcome here. But to be engaged in leadership and or teaching, no, no, a thousand. Fasting. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They continued steadfastly, what? In the apostles' doctrine. Now, even my mother, that word doctrine to her, she just, she got bored by it. 
Oh, I can't, I can't handle, I, Larry, just don't do the doctrine thing. I said, Mom, just call it what it is, it's teaching. Oh, well, teaching's okay. <laughs> I don't know if she was in a class somewhere they droned on and called the doctrine or what, I don't know. But doctrine, does it, does it put you to sleep as well? It surely shouldn't, because it is just that, it's the teaching of God's word. And it's absolutely imperative, because it's interesting. Did you see where evangelism is in this list? Now, it's not only at the end of our, of, our, of our acronym, but it's also, if you notice, it's at the very end of our passage. Why is that? What would you evangelize without having a body instructed and understand the works of God, understanding Jesus Christ, understanding everything that Jesus Christ wants us to understand? We don't even know what we would be joining if you're from the outside, correct? Evangelism is a consequence of the right inside fillings. So we have the saved that are, that are, that are there, but we also have a sense of uh, one more verse I'd like to share with you. It's especially, I think, fluid in today as well. And, and they missed it in Pergamos. Well, by the way, is the church of Pergamos, how are they doing? They're dead. They're gone. It's over. Why? Because they probably didn't fix that. You know what happens to any church that doesn't play like that? That is worship, instruction, cheating, fellowship, and, and evangelism, it dies. You, you can't live, right? And that's not just, it's anybody, any church that doesn't include Jesus Christ as being the front and center of all of it. Pergamos is dead. Even those churches that are in Revelation that had a great start, they're not there anymore. They're not there anymore. Why? Well, let's take a look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a verse said that, it, you know, you're very familiar with it, but in verse 13 through 15, it says, For such are false, pro I'm sorry, false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. They're transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. So what does that mean? They're not apostles of Christ. And then verse 14, and that's not marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. I always get amused by a cult that will talk about, they saw an angel of light. Therefore, it must be of God. That's not what that verse says. <laughs> Satan is and can, trans or can transform himself into an angel of light. So it says in verse 15, therefore, it's no great thing of his ministers, that is, his minions, also be transformed as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Oh, how true. How true. So it was, a, it was not only a saved church, it was a studying church. They were steadfastly engaged in the apostles' teaching or doctrine. Let's go to uh, 2 Timothy. Let's look at some passages here re revolving around Paul mentoring Titus and, and Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me, speaking to Timothy, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others too. In other words, it's not just, it's not just supposed to stop. Uh, you teach someone else so that they can teach someone else so they can teach somebody else so it continues to go on. That's the key of instruction, of teaching. It's not just a stopping point. It's a continuum, a, a, a growing or, organism, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's go there for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. 1 Peter 2, 2. 
As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Yeah, exactly. This instruction is for growth. It's to allow you to go to a new level, if you will. Now, how are you, how do you grow? How, how, does, this, what, how, do, how does this work? What grows? When you're, when, you're being, when you're instructed or you're being taught, quote, doctrine, what, what happens? What, what, what's, what's taking place? Knowledge? Okay. Now, let's say it's just for knowledge. Is knowledge in and of itself, is that good enough? No. In fact, let's be careful. We'll take a, we'll take a uh, remind me of a scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's turn there for a moment. Because knowledge in and of itself, uh, Paul's pretty clear on that. I, did I say second? Should have been First Corinthians chapter eight, I believe. I'm hoping. Yeah, there we go. First Corinthians chapter eight, verse one. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. Oh, well, that's interesting. So, if you're being instructed only to gain a sense of a degree or a a diploma or some head game thing that I pass that and I know this. You know what it does? That just promotes pride. Knowledge in and of itself doesn't do any good at all. But when we're, when we're engaged in knowledge to literally change our lives, and how does, he, how does he do that? Let's go to that level. How does God change your lives? How does he make you into the image of Jesus Christ, which he talks about in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29? And by the way, that's his purpose. He saved you not to just send you eternal life. I hope you understand that. That's not the key of a focus. The key focus for him is literally to convert you, to make you into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 8, 29 says. You should look a little bit more like Jesus Christ every single day after you've been saved. How does he do that? The Holy Spirit, yes, he certainly does. Word, he's guiding you into truth, right? Okay. That's right. That's exact. That's how he gets it done. That's literally how he gets it done. So let's go to, uh, and here it's interesting, the contrast. Right now, this morning, I don't know if you turn on any sense of a social media or a television or a radio or anything, but there's a system that's out there. And there's, this is, I want to see this contrast. We're going to go to Romans chapter 12. There are two contrasting forces that are continuing, especially on a Christian. On the non-Christian, there is, no, there is no difference. When you're dead in trespasses and sins, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, you're not even alive. You don't even know you're dead. Now, that's the epitome of lost. You don't even know you're dead. Whoa, right? So let's go to, uh, well, I was going to go to that one. Where did I tell you to go first? Oh, yeah, Romans chapter 12. Let's go there for a moment. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at the two contrastive forces. And this literally is why you must have the teaching or the doctrine laid out in its fullest so that you can ward against this first one that is coming to us. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You're here on Sunday, and you say, yeah, I'm going I'm to commit myself to Jesus Christ, right? That sounds, sounds like the right thing to do. What happens on Monday morning at about 6.30 or 7? Uh, let me show you. In verse 2, and be not conformed to this world. <laughs> That's what happens every waking moment being part of this system. 
I jump on my truck tomorrow morning at 5 o'clock. Buddy gets in his truck at 5 o'clock in the morning. If he turns the radio on. Or Paul, you go, you go somewhere. Or Bill, you go somewhere. Or you're just sitting in your house. Or you're reading a, a, a newspaper. Guess what? Every single one of those devices is trying to conform you to the image of this world. And that's what the importance is of literally taking instruction of God's word. Because what happens is this. It says, not, be not conformed to the image of this world, but be ye transformed. That's complete renewal by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You'll never have the will of God as an outcome until you have the income of having renewing of your mind. Period. And, that, and that's really clear, isn't it? It's, it's straight away. Here, income, here comes the incoming. Satan has just kind of compromised his favor. It works too well on myself, honestly. It's amazing how little, just a little tiny compromise, how far it goes down the trail of really skewing you. I always tell this story. I don't know if any of you, I may not get the numbers right, but it's, but it's, it's, it's like this. So Bob Powell, I remember, any of you remember Bob Powell? Okay, Bob was, uh, he was a missionary in Paraguay, okay? And there was a, there was a deal where they were, they were surveying a, lot, a piece of ground. <coughs> See you guys later. And, and when, he, when he was, he was surveying a piece of ground that had been given to them, Right? And if you knew Bob very well, Bob was in a hurry all the time. Patience was not his number one thing. And I'm not saying that illegitimately. I'm not saying with any callous. I love to be around Bob because we're going to get things done. That's how he was, right? And he said on this one particular night, or we kept waiting. It was cloudy. And he had a survey. He had a survey guy with him so they could figure out, well, they got a cat. All they got to do is cut this line through this forest because they want to get this, this piece of property figured out. Makes sense? And he said, day after day after day, it was a cloudy night. And the surveyor said, no, we will not do this until I have full access to the stars so that I can get my lines and so that I can get this figured out. And Bob is just chomping at the bit, right? He can't stand it. He's just, and I can see him doing this. He's telling a story. He couldn't even hardly tell it, right? He's going along. Finally, he said, Larry, I just, I said, no, we're, tomorrow morning, I'm going to take that cat and we're going to, we know about where it's at and I'll take off and then we'll stop you know, to spend the day. Well, as it worked out, that night after he had cut his first trail, guess what? The stars were out. Mr. Surveyor, <laughs> and he says, Larry, it was amazing. I started out right, but a little bit off is a long ways off after a while. <laughs> that is the best analogy. I've used it numbers of times in, a, in our Christian life. When we allow just a little bit off, it won't matter, doesn't matter. I, I'm okay, I'm okay. You know what? Your life will be very askew. And it doesn't go like that. It doesn't have to, as long as it's just off, right? Miss the mark. Miss the mark. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly what sin is. You, you know, the, the, the Grand Canyon is 18 miles wide, right? And, Paul, you, were, you had your tennis shoes on. Right? We use that analogy, right? And you jumped to, what, 130 feet? Well, 130 feet and 18 miles is not going to get it very, very well done. Even though I'd be less than that, that doesn't make him any better. He's not going to get to heaven. He missed the mark. That's what compromise does. It allows us or makes us miss the mark. That's why we have to be sure that we understand the doctrines of Scripture. And studying it. Study yourself to be approved. Um, where, where, were we, where did I take you last? Romans? Um, let's take a look at... Boy, i got so much stuff here. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Looks at a couple others that really fit the same mold or the same model. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. And have put on the new man, 
which is renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. That's the same message, isn't it? Exactly. You think God wants to be saying something? I think so. First Peter chapter 1. There's another one. Let's take a look at that. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, how many of you have girded up your loins of mind this week? <laughs> that sounds weird, doesn't it? We've, uh, I think it was, I don't know where we were at. Maybe it was a couple of the guys the other night uh, with the belt of truth. Okay. And you gird up your loins. And that, that's weird. I mean, it, it's weird for us, right? I've got to go gird up my loins. I mean, I mean, I'll be honest. Most people will say, why don't you do that all by yourself? I, I don't, <laughs> right? I don't know what you're talking about, but buddy, I, I don't think I want to be part of that, right? But it literally means just make sure that you have all your stuff together with a belt of truth. And that's really a piece of defensive armor that you, as a believer, get access to when you trust Christ. There's six defensive mechanisms or pieces of armor that you get and one offensive, literally two. You have the scripture, the sword, of the, the sword of the spirit, and prayer. Those two tools are what you're working with. Think of this for a moment. And sometimes it's, it's amazing. You, you answer the question I'm not going to for you. But how important is the scripture versus prayer for you? Or how important is prayer versus the scripture? Some people are weighted on either side. But let's just talk about that for a moment. If you have just Bible reading, you have just light. You have no heat. If you have just prayer, you have no heat, you have heat but you have no light. Uh, wouldn't it be better to have both? Of course. And the interesting part is, is the scripture reading drives you into prayer or prayer drives you back to the word. The heat and light come together, but you leave one out and it's not, it's not robust. Amen. It's not robust, right? It's just not. So that's a bunny I'm running down the wrong hill around the, let's see, where was I going to go with that one? Oh, the armor truth, girding up the loins of your mind is what Peter is saying. Get, get your head straight, people. Let the knowledge of God fill your mind. Is, his mo is, 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 is what he's trying to say. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, let's see. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, focused, and hope to the end for the grace that is being brought unto you, brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Get your head straight. Um, let's see. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This, this makes some sense. Just turn back, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. <clears throat> Is this important? This is the last chapter of the last letter that Paul wrote ever to his dear student Timothy. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. That sounds pretty good. See, he threw that doctrine word in there again, right? Teach, preach, get the truth out. Now watch, why? Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Have we approached that time? Oh, my goodness. I was reading. What, what was I reading? Um, oh, I guess. I don't know if you know. I, I didn't know until I read some little blurb on Fox News or something on my phone. But um, Charles Stanley passed away in this last week. Okay. And uh, at any rate, Franklin Graham had taken a position saying he was truly a man of God. I have to appreciate what he did and how dedicated he was to holding the Word of God up in a very pronounced anti-Bible time. Okay? It, was, it was, you know, he didn't say anything was wrong. He just laid it out there. And I'm telling you, well, sometimes you want to know the, the, the consistency of, of what our nation is. Read the comments after that. Oh, my goodness. I mean, just vengeance and envy. I'm not envy. Just, I mean, hatred against what Franklin said about another pastor. That He's 90 years old. He lived a life and he lived it consistently. That's another thing. 
That's one we know thing about Christianity is it's consistent, isn't it? The staying, the steadfastness. Um, and, you know, we think of those that didn't. Well, let's go to, this is mixing a little bit. Let me, let me try to finish this thing up with, uh, I don't even know where that was going, actually, with Dr. Where, where's I going with that one? Maybe we'll leave that rabbit and run around by himself for a moment. But I'm thinking of this, but, but I'll tell you what, if nothing else, it was no more than this for Dr. Stanley to run a consistent, patterned life, right? I didn't know him personally. Was he a sinner? Of course he was, just like I am. I mean, it's no different. But the point of the matter was, when he sinned, he got back up. And the Word of God was, he, he pronounced it and proclaimed it as well as any man. He, he was great analogies. He was, he was a good pastor of that church. He really was. For years and years and years, he's going to be hard to follow, right? Maybe he already has. So it doesn't matter. The man was steadfast. That's what I want you to know, okay? That's one of the characteristics of someone that's really part of the church. I'm saying that the saved ones is the sense of consistency, continuation, steadfastness. There are those that you can also think of, and you don't need to put names to them because they're in your mind probably. Someone that didn't remain steadfast, that did not continue in the faith, okay? And those bother us, right? Because we want to make sure that the salvation we have is secure. Uh, it's, you know, you can call whatever you want, eternal security. I want, my, I want my salvation to be secure. I don't want to be based on me because if it's based on me, I've already lost it. I couldn't get it in the first place. If I, can, if I can get salvation by myself, then it's not good enough because my faith is in me. And faith is only as good or as strong as the object in which it's placed or the validity of it, right? So if someone loses their salvation, that's not a good one to have. And you see someone that maybe fails, that's fallen away. And there are, I, I want to just use this as a, as a basic parameters. But the point of the matter is, First uh, John actually talks about that for a moment. Someone that maybe has stayed the course for a year or six months or whatever. And look at this. This is, this is very true. Uh, perseverance, if you will, is, is very key. First John chapter 2, verse 19. First John chapter 2, verse 19. We'll start in verse 18. <clears throat> Little children, it is the last time, as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now that's a long way, a long way around to say they were never Christians. Perseverance or continuance is part of being a Christian. That's literally what Paul is, I'm sorry, what Peter, the book of Acts is speaking about in the sense of beginning the church. That's a key component. Now, understanding carefully, there's other particularly considerations that are totally between God and that person. But by as, by as, as a whole, as a rule, uh, perseverance is something that is because you're in Christ, you persevere. So if you have the right content, that is, saved people in the church, I love that, don't you? 3,120 members, if you will. I'm going to use that word loosely. And 3,120 of those are trusting Christ as Savior. It's a 100% saved church. Fantastic. And they're steadfastly listening to the teaching and preaching of the disciples. This is going somewhere now, right? This is good stuff. What else can we say? Well, we also know that it's a praying church. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2, and let's read verse 42 once again. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, we'll be getting to that in a moment, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, in the breaking of bread, um, that would have connotations to the sense of communion. The last time that the disciples were together with, the, with, with Jesus, he says, do this until, in remembrance of me until I see you again. 
okay, which would be a long time. Has been a long time. Will, but hopefully not very much longer. It's coming, but at any rate, what is going on in your daily life if you're part of the 3,120 members of this new church? Now, I mentioned, I still got this map up here. Um, things aren't easy. You're in Jerusalem, and I'm not sure exactly why you're staying there, but Jesus said to stay there. Grow the church. Keep growing. And by the way, persecution is coming soon enough. We're about two chapters away from an Acts, and you know what happens to this believing community? Poof! It blows up, and that's how Jesus literally proselytes the whole world. So you see, even in persecution, God's good is accomplished. Even those tough days you're having, those things that you say, now where does that fit? I may not be able to tell you, but God and His plan is going to get somewhere, somebody, to hear the message of Jesus Christ. I, I won't go into it again, but that truck wreck that I was in. Alice prayed that morning, Alice and Ernie prayed that morning, I would be exactly at the right place at the right time. An hour later, I'm in a truck wreck. Why nobody's dead is totally up to God. There should be cows, there should be horses, there should be people dead. But the interesting part is there's at least four people I know of that now have been confronted with their mortality, people that would have never even thought about it if it hadn't have been right there. Then. I'll be part of that any day if it brings them to Jesus Christ. Right? And God's about all of that. That's what He does every day. He's doing miracles and wonders that are bringing people to Christ. That's God at work. Now it says that um, they were breaking a bread. So I think they were regularly actually engaged in communion, a service that would have been representative, symbolic of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Because you know what happened to every one of those 3,120 members of this church right now? Every single one of them commonly are at the foot of the cross as getting into that body. That's what brings unison. That's what brings unity. It's Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the only reason that we're here today. If you're a Christian and you're here today, it's because you're at the foot of the cross. That cross is what impacted the difference between you being unsaved and saved. It's truly the thing. That's what brings unity, literally. So that was something that would be very much in their, in their order. Now, the other thing, I, I, I'm going to jump ahead for just a moment. That's okay. Let, let's keep going. And in prayers. This is a praying group of people. Now, how often did they meet? Well, I'll tell you what. You know, Mondays are tough for me. Um, oh, I can't come on Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday, I, maybe, maybe could fit a Wednesday. And Thursday, oh, we're out. <laughs> Sorry. Let's look at, take a look at this. Now, these are busy people. It's, you know, Jerusalem is a busy place. Verse 46, we're jumping ahead, but, and they continuing, and they, the group, continuing daily with one accord in unity in the, in the, in the temple? What? What? Well, there would be one place in the whole temple complex. I don't remember how many. What did I say? That's like 40 acres. Do you guys remember when we were studying that? The whole, it, it was, it's large. It's 30 or 40 acres, I think. And Jesus, he went and cleaned that place up, starting the inside out. But at any rate, the court of the Gentiles would be a place that anyone could meet. Now, I'm going to tell you how happy the chief priest would be with a group that's calling themselves the Church of Jesus Christ meeting in the temple. That's a bad deal. We've got to get rid of these clowns, right? But you know what? Legally, they could meet in the court of the Gentiles because even Gentiles could be there. No doubt that's where they were at. That's where they were. Really, are you ready? They're worshiping Jesus Christ in the temple daily in one accord. Are you excited? This sounds contagious to me. That's amazing. Doing it daily. 
Now, it also says that after they had the right content, shall we say, filled with Christians, they're praying, they're teaching God's word. Oh, now, wait a minute. Didn't say that, though, did it? It said the apostles' doctrine. Where did the apostles get their doctrine and their teaching from? Do you know what Jesus was doing in the post-50 days after he rose from the dead? It tells us in Luke chapter 24, verse 55 or 45 or somewhere right in there. It says that he taught the disciples from the Old Testaments and the prophets about his coming and his crucifixion and his rising again. So guess what? The apostles' doctrine is what they learned from Jesus about the Old Testament that was there before they, before Jesus got there. But now they're expounding upon the very thing that's in the scriptures. Now, we get to the next thing. You go from content. What's after content? What would we do after that? Hmm. What would we do with that? See, right content produces right character. J.P. Morgan, the financier from years and years ago, the original, because I don't think J.P. Morgan Bank today has very much integrity either, but at any rate, he said something that was interesting. He said, man's greatest asset is his character. That's very true. In fact, Paul, when you were in the banking business, right, there was the, there was the CCC, right? And, and that one, in the sense of, I, I said it wrong, his greatest collateral was his character. So glad I caught that. But when you were banking, Years ago, character made a lot of difference. Today, it doesn't mean much because you have a credit score that numerically is on a screen. I'll go with character any day. When I'm hiring people, I want to know their character. Their resume to me, it's something they've done, something they've been. I don't know if they're even telling the truth. Until I know their character, that's when I really know if I can trust them. Isn't that true? It's absolutely true. And if you have the right thinking, if you have the right content, you have saved people studying God's word and you're praying, I will tell you what will happen. Your character will be crazy good. Now, part of that character is also something that's happened here. It says that the apostles, just the apostles, no one else, it says, verse 43, fear came upon every soul. I want to stop there for a moment. If you take a church of Jesus Christ that's fully engaged and studying God's word, I'm going to show you one that is filled with awe of a God. I mean, you will see God in his full awesomeness. And I'm saying full is as much as you can see at any one time. That's why I pray every single, well, I don't know if I should say every single Sunday, but when I do, I want our relationship now. When you went in, came into this place and the church arrived, the church was not here until you got here. This is just a building without you. But when the church gets here, I want you after this event for God to have moved you that relationally, you will be further than you were when you came in here. That's how God wants it to be, okay? That awesomeness of God, that sovereignty of God that overrides everything else. I think of how tremendous the awe is. Now, there's, there's a, we're going to go to a passage in Luke chapter 7. Because the same word is used in the sense of awe. And it, I, I want you to go here because it's easier for you to see it. Now, if you back up right now, there has been 3,000 people who have just trusted Christ just a few days before, at best, at most. I mean, what's going on? They've never seen the Holy Spirit come before. They've never seen what's happened. This is crazy. But I'm going to show you something the same word is used. Luke, go to Luke chapter 7. Let's take a look. <clears throat> Luke chapter 7, and I bought 11. 7-11. Eh, it had nothing to do with the store. 7-11 uh, of Luke. Here we go. These are miracles and signs that brought about the awe. 
Now it says, I should have read that further, but before we read this, the apostles were actually given the ability to perform miracles and wonders in this church. Now there's a, there's a reason. We'll talk about that in a moment. This is the reason we see in Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. It came to pass the day after that, he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and much people. This is a big group. Now when they came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. This is, does this sound, what does this sound like? This sounds painful. Jesus is in, his entourage are coming into the city of Nain and coming out of the city of Nain is this widow and her dead son and a large group there. Okay? This sounds like, hmm, how's Jesus going to handle this? When the Lord saw her, he had a compassion on her. He sees this widow immediately. And he says unto her, weep not. Hmm, good, easy for you to say. And when he came and touched the bier or the casket, they that bear him stood still. And he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. Now at this point, amongst the laughter and the murmuring, uh, they would think, who is this clown? Who is this guy, right? How many, how many, how many in that group, and it's a big group, how many would you say, I'm going to go with Jesus on this one? I think that man's going to rise right out of that casket. That would be zero. <laughs> The disciples, you could, have, you could have engaged them. There's 12 there probably. It says they're all there. Guess what? They, ooh, he overstepped it there, buddy. What are you thinking, right? I mean, what the world? But let's watch. Let's keep going. This is a miracle about to happen. And he that was dead sat up. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to laugh. Because the, boom, the casket opens. This guy's sitting up. And the guy's carrying him. I sure dropped him. So, right? That's what you're going to do. Right? This is crazy good. And everybody's... I mean, it was nothing spoke. Let's keep going. Have you, have you got your attention yet? Got mine. <clears throat> and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all. That's the word of awe. The fear came. You bet it did. They have no idea who this guy is, right? That's awe. That's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2. Now, do you see how different it is? That's the same word. Whoa. They came a fear on and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet has risen up among us and that God hath visited his people. And the rumor of him went forth throughout all of Judea and throughout all the region round about. I'll bet it did. What was the purpose of that miracle? The one in Luke chapter 7? What was, what was the purpose of that miracle? Glorify God. To glorify God. And literally to show, to give evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. Now, why would the apostles need miracles? Let's go back to Acts chapter 2, and I'll read that passage now. Because this is what gave the church awe, is some of these things that happened. It says that fear came upon every soul, verse 43, chapter 2 of Acts. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Why is that important? Is it important? Why would it be important? We're going to go ahead and say it is important. Why would it be important? Okay, let me set it up. Let's say along with... uh, and when Jesus came into town into Nain, this is not in the word, this is, I'm just making this up. But let's say that he was one guy that came in and he had a message, okay? And people, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard it that way before. And there's four other guys with four of the messages. And they come in and they tell their story. And each one of them, five guys, is a different message. How you get to God. That doesn't sound too terribly abnormal from what we hear today, right? You can get on the internet and you can find a thousand ways to get to God. Or stay away from him, depending on your, you know, if you're an atheist or whatever. But which one would you trust? I'm going to go with the guy that raised the dead guy. 
Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to go with that one. <laughs> I'm going to go with the Jesus that rose from the dead that showed himself to 501 times. That's who I'm going to go with. Muhammad, he's still dead. Right? <laughs> but why do, do we need miracles today? I said need. No, you don't. Why? How much of the New Testament did the apostles have? They didn't call it the Bible. They said the apostles' doctrine. Why do they call it apostles' doctrine? Because it's their instruction that came from Jesus' seminars with them, Luke chapter 24, verse 45, that literally is the Old Testament that was exploited and robustly, uh, what should I say, um, interpreted for them that that's what they shared. The Old Testament talks about Jesus just as much as the New Testament. If you want to divide the New Testament and Old Testament, don't do that for heaven's sakes. They both talk about Jesus. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. You know who's there? That's Jesus Christ. At the very end, it says, I come quickly. Jesus Christ's own words. He is everywhere in the Bible. But how much of the New Testament did these folks have? Zero. So what did they need? They need validation of the message. They had to have proof, if you will. And I'm going to go with the one that can raise someone from the dead. The apostle, in fact, we're going, to find, we're going to find the first miracle next week, Lord willing, in chapter 3 of Acts. It's going to talk about them healing a man. That would give credence. That would give the sense of validation to what their message is. So far, Peter has used the validation of Jesus Christ himself. He said, you Jews killed that Jesus who was the Messiah, the Christ. You killed your own Messiah, passing him over to the Romans and crucified him. But guess what? He's alive. <laughs> He's alive. And I say amen as well. I'll tell you what, without him being alive, I would not be wasting your time here today. Wouldn't be worth it. It'd be just be one other one. It'd just be one more. I'd be dead in my trespasses and sins. I'd just have to live, be happy. What, what's that word? Uh, um, you just kind of enjoy yourself. Hedonism. Uh, you just yeah, take everything you can get and, just, and then die. Right? Yeah, basically, yeah. Just take it all, all that you can get and just go on. It's over. It doesn't matter. Really? Ooh. That's not the message of Jesus. That's not the message of God. Boy, these disciples, I'll tell you what. What a group. I, I, are you starting to want to join this church? Amen. I'm ready to get on board. I mean, they are getting it done. They're getting it done. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 5 for a moment. You're in chapter 2. To turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, see, this is going to be the part of Acts. It's going to roll through Acts for quite a while. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all in one accord on Solomon's porch. So that's, a, that's a theme, if you will, of them showing that their message is validated. But once the scripture is completed, guess what we can do? Someone brings, okay, we've got five guys to come through that door. You should, by the way, study yourself to be approved. What I say, you guys should take notes. You should go home and make sure that it lines up. Does the scriptures, does it say that? I mean, you need to do that. The Bereans were, uh, right? They were exalted, sort of. That's the wrong word. What they? they were uh, more noble. More noble, that's better. Uh, because what? They studied. They studied the scriptures. Let's say five guys through, come and each of them are given five minutes. And at the end, you got a headache because they all have five different, very, very different messages. And you're taking them all in. And none of them did any miracles. Oh, I want to stop for a moment. Let me stop for a moment. Do not walk away from this place saying today, Larry said, God doesn't do any more miracles. Oh, heavens no, I did not say that at all. I said, does God need to do miracles today? He doesn't have to because we have the word of God. I'll get in that in just a moment. So let's set that aside just parenthetically. For a moment, does God do miracles today? Oh, my goodness. He's doing miracles this moment. He did a miracle in that truck rack. There's no reason. You could not put that truck where I put it. I didn't put it anywhere. God did. But he used that for 
a, a, a situation that someone, I believe, is going to be saved out of that situation. That was a miracle. There should be dead people. There's people right now that God is doing a miracle in their life. In the hospital, they could be anywhere. My mother, I don't know if I've ever shared this before, but she was actually scheduled for breast surgery. She had breast cancer. She had repeated tests. This is a long time ago. And on the day she's to have surgery, they said, let's do one more mammogram. And she's laying there waiting and waiting. I don't know if you guys knew this, but my mother wasn't exactly patient either. <laughs> I got it from somebody, right? I'm sorry. But at any rate, she's waiting and nothing's happening. It just goes on and time goes on. And finally, you know, she's, she says, what's going on? And, and, and finally, the doctor comes and he says, Mrs. Mom, I, I don't know what to say. There's nothing there. And of course, you know my mother. And this is my mother. Oh, I know exactly what happened. God healed it. And the guy's just shaking his head. But, but the bottom line was is she never did have surgery. And she's there to have surgery. Okay? You can call it what you want. You can call that 15 guys read the, the mammograms wrong. They have all of these upcoming, you know. No, I'm going to go with God perform the miracle. Amen. That's what I'm going to go with. Did he have to? No, he didn't have to, but he did. Because in this case, it gave mom a few more years to be in the nursing home for no other reason. There's men and women got saved in that nursing home because my mother was granted the opportunity because she, you see what I'm saying? And I don't know how this thing all ties together, but I know this much. God is fully in control. And if he wants to do a miracle, I'm all for it. But the point is, five guys, come, let's come back to my, let parenthetically set that aside. And we've got five guys that come in and you've listened to their stories. And every one of them tells you a different way to get to God. You know what? You don't need a miracle. You've got God's word. Did that line up with God's word? Did any one of them say that Jesus Christ was not the God? If he did, he's out. Does any one of them say that he was not man? If they did, he's out. Do you see what I'm saying? God's word is so manifest in the sense that it allows us to see the truth in its fullest form. There's nothing more we need than the Word of God today to decipher truth. Amen. I mean, we are blessed people. Yes. Isn't that great? And you could say, well, I, wish I, I, was, I could live where they had miracles. I'm going to tell you something. I want God's Word. I want to be able to see in the Word what's true. You know, you can take whatever you're on the Internet. Uh, that ain't right. This is what God's Word says. Just like we've, I've said this a million times probably, but uh, the, the gals, the tellers at a bank, they don't give them 1,000 different kinds of counterfeit money. Of course not. Just the real stuff. You handle the real stuff long enough, and a counterfeit comes in, boom, that's not right. That's all you need to know. It's not right. Now, I will say, if someone came under those five guys, and they said anything other than that Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes under the Father except by me, that's false. Get him out. I'm gone. Don't need it. Word of God is the absolute gold standard for truth. No matter what. Traditions. Cultures, whatever, kick them out the door. God's word, the truth, is what really it all rests on. Are you guys getting tired yet? <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm trying to figure out how I can fit, fit this all in here now. Um, one thing we haven't talked about, we need, and we need to spend some time here, and that is we've got a, we've got a church of the right content. And those we've, got, we've got saved people. We've got studying God's word. And we've got a praying group. Okay? When you do that, you're going to get the right character. We're going to get, what was our first point even? What did we just get done with? Oh, for goodness sakes. 
Oh, awe, reverence, miracles, all of those things that would validate exactly what happened, okay? They are filled with really who's in charge here, whose glory are we interested in? God and God alone, okay? The other thing that's happening, and this is something that I love about this little church right here, but it's not, it can be in big churches, it doesn't have to be in a small church. It's easier, I think, in a small church that is really spirit-filled in the sense that your sense of fellowship, or the word, the Greek word is koinonia, I love that word, koinonia. It's to be sharing. You're literally, you're partners with, not only partners with Jesus Christ because he justified you, and that's why he made you not guilty. You were declared not guilty positionally. So when God sees you because he sees Jesus Christ's blood, you are not guilty. And I say, praise God. Now, the other thing is, though, that practically, practically, you want to fit what you are positionally. That's, what we, that's called sanctification. We work on that every single day. And you have good days, you have bad days, you have bad hours. Right? That just goes on. But the point is, is that's the goal. God wants, posi- I'm sorry, p- practically or experientially, he wants you to meet the same level where you are positionally. That's why he's conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. Because the more you look like Jesus, that's, 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 that's meeting, that's getting it done. But... How do you share? Now, that's something I, I'm, I always marvel with little kids, right? Um, you don't have to teach them to be selfish. Uh, Johnny, Johnny, is there a Johnny in here? I don't mean, I'm just using, this is, this is little Johnny, okay? Uh, Johnny, I'll tell you what we're going to do today. Um, you're one years old, and I'm concerned that you're sharing too much. So what I want to do today is I want to teach you how to be selfish. <laughs> that's part of the package. That comes early. That comes with the package. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Sin came upon all, for all men sinned. That's part of our nature. You don't have to teach a little kid to be selfish. It's in there, buddy. And I still got it. It's still easy to come, isn't it? But see, Koinonia breaks that mold. The sharing and caring. And when you're instructed in God's word, when you're worshiping him in awe, when you see who's really in charge, things change because it's not about you anymore. It's about how I can be part of the group of believers. How can I share and care more than I'm doing now? Now, you'll see that in several ways in this passage. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2 for a moment, and let's take a look. This was a sharing church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles, verse 42, and fellowship. That word is koinonia. That is to be sharing, to be part of, to, to help. In, and there's a unity within it. It's meeting needs of others, if you will. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. In other words, they're helping. This isn't a commune that they're living in. That is something that happens in this passage, that we sell everything and we all live up. No, that's that's not the point. The point is this. This is why I brought you to this, it's not slide, but this map, is in Jerusalem there'd be many that were visitors, that would have needed help from the outside. Or those that probably would have been, I mean, let, let's, let's say your name is Thomas and you're 25 years old. And you heard Peter's sermon. And Peter said that you were one of those that killed the Messiah. And you asked yourself, what am I going to do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. In it. Grab me by the heart. I'm Thomas. And I got saved. 
And I went home and I told my family. My dad was not happy. In fact, he was furious. In fact, I was ostracized. I was told to never come back in that house again. You see what I'm saying? That Thomas needed help from the group. That's why Paul, who owned his own house and had his own job, could say, you know what? I'm sorry to hear that about that, Thomas. Tell you what, here, let, let me, I've, got, I've got some stuff in this, in this um, storage unit. <laughs> it's kind of funny, isn't it? They probably didn't have storage units. We have storage units. We build more storage units than we build houses anymore. Isn't that true? But Paul said, I can go to my storage unit, and I've got something I haven't used in 10 or 15 years, and I'm going to sell that bad boy, and then I'm going to, because I can tell you really need it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out, and I'm going to give you something that I don't need to make your life better. That's koinonia. That's, and someone else, it wasn't just Paul. It's, it's not up to just one or two. It was in unison. It was in common thought. You see, churches work so good when it's like that, isn't it? And you know what? You cannot do this. Churches that the last one to leave is, takes four minutes, and they're all gone, and you have to shut the lights off? No, it's not like that. You've got to call, you've got to write, you've got to text, you've got to do different things to get to know the body. You've got to get to know the believers. And the more you know the believers, the more you know how you can pray for them, how you can share with them, how you can care for them, how you can do things that literally make their lives better. That's koinonia. And guess what? That church is big on it. And again, I want to say it's probably more so in this situation because of where they're at, gather for the feast. And it's just, just think about how God put this all together. The Feast of Pentecost when he decided to start the church. That is beautiful. You can already see it set up perfectly for sacrifice and service. Even Jesus, he came in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus came not to be served, but to be the servant of all, right? He gave his life as a ransom for many. Oh, that's a literal purpose for fellowship, for koinonia. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Let's go to uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. I didn't say John 3.16, but if we did say John 3.16, for whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, right? That's John 3.16. Let's take a look at 1 John 3.16. The same guy wrote, this, wrote the words. Holy Spirit inspired him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. We're going to start winding down here now. And it says this. Hereby, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, we instantly think, your first thing is, it's just like Christ. But no, that's not it. It's not necessary. Jesus Christ accomplished everything that was necessary to take away sin. He did that. But we're to lay down our lives. How is that? What does that look like? The next verse tells us. But whosoever hath this world's good... And seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? See, that's how we literally lay down our life for our brothers, is by giving of ourselves, koinoniaing. I don't think that's a word, but you're okay. You won't ever forget it, right? See, that's what Paul was doing when he went to his storage shed. Okay? And sometimes we give out of need. Uh, Someone said that the cost of ministry... If, there, if, 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 the, if ministry didn't cost you anything, you probably didn't accomplish anything. Isn't that true? Very true. What was that that Jim Elliott said? He was in the Ache uh, Indians. He said, I, 
He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. And you think about that for a moment. That's pretty good, isn't it? And that's what we live life. How many people are keeping things they can't hold, that is wealth, property, whatever it is, they can't hold it. You cannot, there's no U-Hauls behind these horses. But to give it all up, that's what he asked the rich young ruler to do, right? Remember that? That wasn't how he was going to get eternal life, was to give everything away. But he knew that was the hindrance to that young man. But when he asked him to give away the thing so that he gained what he could really get, and that's Jesus Christ, that couldn't be taken from him, that's the epitome of what this whole church is all about, isn't it? What do we have here? There's a word we haven't even used. Well, maybe we have, but haven't used it in some sense of, of principle. What would you call this church? And I'm, I'm using, I, I like this. This is kind of cute. You know, you got a wife, you know, the wife of Jesus Christ, the church, worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism. It's kind of cute. But what would we say about that group right now? We've talked about content. We've talked about character. I've got one left. We're going to talk about consequence. But what would you say? Where is this church? What, what's the word we could say about that? It's really cool. Excuse me? Servants. servants. And in what capacity? Not, not what capacity. Um, in what realm? How many were servants? They all were. What do we call that word? Unity. That's something that isn't happening regularly around our planet today. Because Jesus Christ is not ruling and reigning in the sense of men and women's lives. Unity. You know what unity brings? This is another thing we really don't have a lot of right now today. How many people have joy? Peace. And you know what? Joy and peace go together. That's why Jesus, every time he popped into a room, right? You know, like these disciples got everything locked down because they're afraid they're going to be next to be crucified. Jesus just walks in and he says, what does he say? How's it going, guys? No, he doesn't. He says, peace be on you every single time because they needed it, right? And usually if you don't have peace, you don't have joy. You know what unity brings? Joy, Right? That's why in 1 John, I don't know if I gave that to you or not, but verse one, chapter 1, verse 4, talks about that your joy would be more full. You know, that your fellowship with Christ and with other believers becomes more full. That's why I'm writing this letter. That's the book I'm having Ernie read through, right? 1 John, you're going to find that next week. Joy. Count it all joy, brethren. James said that when you fall into various trials and temptations. How could that be joyful? How could Philippians, which is written by Paul, he's, he's on a... He's in prison. When's the last time you've been in prison? Probably none of us have been. If you have, you know what it is? How many times did you count? Boy, I'm sure glad I'm in prison. I am so joyful. That's weird. Remember, we were using, I was using a little, Paul and I, we got locked up because, what, what did we do? How did we get there? You remember that? What was the deal? I don't remember it either, but we did something wrong. And I was just making a, a, a statement that at midnight, Paul and Silas were locked up in a prison and they had been flogged. They have been physically beaten. And at midnight, they're singing hymns. And that's what I asked Paul. Would you think we would be in Madison County Jail singing hymns at midnight after we've been beaten? I think he said no, didn't you? <laughs> right? What is it? What's the difference? What's the difference? It's joy that's invigorated by literally being in Jesus Christ's Arms of compassion and love and eternal security, right? Isn't that precious? You know what steals joy from a church? It's disunity. You show me a church that's got splits and divisions and schisms, I'll show you a church that has no joy. Joy. Well, you got that right. That's right. In fact, we're suffering, our country, our planet is suffering from, in fact, I don't know, 
It's interesting you would say that because I would have missed this. Let's go to uh, Amos chapter 8. It has nothing to do with this except what's going on in our world. So if you can find Amos, that little book of Amos, chapter 8. Uh, a clue, it's on page, no. Well, here's, a, here's, a, here's a, not a very good clue. It's just before Obadiah. That didn't help much, did it? Uh, yeah, and it's before Jonah. And if you can't find it, that's okay. I'm going to read it to you. Because um, I, I wrote this down really early. Oh, here we go. Amos chapter 8. Let's see what, see what we have here. Verse 11. Amos 8, uh, verse 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. And in that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. What famine is that talking about? Famine of truth. I have never seen our nation particularly in such an urgent famine of truth. Ever, 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 ever. Hosea says they're dying for lack of knowledge. Isn't that true? That's exactly true. Now, Julie, what did you just, what did you just say? Because it fit in with it. You said, oh, lack of joy in our country. What else did you say? You said something else, didn't you? No, I, that, that's right. That's exactly right. It ties together perfectly. Because you don't have any joy because you don't have the word. Right? Or a truth. And here's the other thing. Romans chapter 1 ties in. Now, that's a, specific, that's a specific prophecy in regards to Israel. Okay? Amos chapter 8. It fits us today. Not that it's even this situation. But if you go to Romans chapter 1 and you start about verse 16 and you work through the end of that chapter, what you're going to find is we've been turned over to a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind is one that is not able to comprehend truth. That's where America is today. We can't even comprehend truth. We don't even want truth. That, my friends, is crazy. And that's where we're at today. We don't even want truth. Excuse me? It's very sad. Pray for America's renewal, shall we say. And what's Satan doing? He's just like he did with Eve. He beguiled her. He's deceived her. Okay, I've got to keep moving. Then our time is gone. Well, the last thing I want to talk about, uh, here's a couple of blurbs. Think about this. In the, if you have... Worship, that's praise and teaching. That's depth. The depth of a church will be determined by its emphasis on worship and instruction. Correct? That's how you grow deeper. Now, how you grow wider is your concept of fellowship, that's sharing, and evangelism. You see how robust it is? All four of these things are absolutely imperative to the growth of the church, either vertically or horizontally. Let's go to the last one, and that is consequence. Consequence. What would be the consequence of this church? This is terrible. It's going to grow. <laughs> Isn't that great? If you have a church that's that fired up, it's going to grow. In fact, we can start going through the next time Peter teaches, and 5,000 people are saved. This is, now this is, what I'm, this is what I want to get at for us today. Are you there in this church in, in uh, 30, 33 A.D.? No, you're not. But you're here, 2023. This type of church is contagious. If people on the outside see this kind of a church, they want it. So we have to ask ourselves some questions. How committed are we to studying the Word of God? 
First of all and foremost, do we even know, do you know Jesus? If you're here and you don't know Jesus, first and foremost, he died for you. All you have to do is trust in him. Repent of your sins, turn the other way. He starts on the inside to do exactly what is necessary for you to be everything he wants you to be. Know him first. Are you using your spiritual gifts? Do you even know what they are? Ooh, it got quiet in here. Yeah. All right, let's, let's just put it another way. It's not important. Your spiritual gifts will be unfolded as you're committed to giving everything you are to God. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to be committed to worship and instruction and fellowship and evangelism? Are you engaged in fellowship? Cleaning it? When's the last time you went to it? I hate to say it. It's not in my notes. The storage unit thing is not in my notes. But it's amazing. I talk to these guys that build storage units for a living. That's what they do. They're storage unit people. They say as soon as they build one, it takes about a year, and then they, that one's filled, and then they build another one, and then that one's filled, and they build another one, and they build. Now, what is that saying? We got a lot of stuff. We got a lot of stuff. Now, I'm just, and that's just totally, I'm just making this up right now. But it's just, I don't know if God, because I've prayed that the Holy Spirit would lead us today. What if we took half the stuff in the storage units and turned it into koinonia? What do you think it would do to the people you're serving and sharing with? I don't know. Yeah, I do know. God would use it for his glory. Are we ready to do whatever's necessary for Jesus Christ to be number one, first in your life, secondary in the church, and number three, over everything? It'll take a commitment to studying the word, a commitment to praying, a commitment to sharing. And God will do miraculous things. That's what was born on this day over 2,000 years ago is the most phenomenal miracle that God could have done in the lives of men and women. And it's still going on. And you're part of it. And Jesus says, go out into all the world and make disciples of men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Is that not the greatest message that we could possibly have in a mission? Let's pray. Father God, don't even know where to start with all of our thanksgivings. Thank you for the church. Thank you for allowing us to be in it. Thank you for Jesus. Still blown away, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. For he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. Your love was so on fire before you made anything. It's crazy. That is infinite love. That is agapao love. That is totally unmerited. Father, we don't deserve any of it you blanketed us with it to the death of your son. Father, there are many men and women and children across this nation, Father, probably in this day and age, haven't even heard of Jesus Christ and what he did. Doesn't even know what the gospel is. Father, I pray for our nation. I pray for moms and dads, families, 
churches. We've been talking about churches today, Father. Churches that honor and glorify you. Churches that want to speak the truth from the scriptures only. Men and women that are serving in those churches, Father, I just ask that you would get a hold of their lives. The fellowship, koinonia, the sharing and caring from their access to help others that are in need. That would become reality. Because they will be filled with joy. Lives will be changed. Christianity becomes contagious. The world changes. Not because of them, but because of whose they are. They're yours then, Father. You have all of them. We never lose the Holy Spirit if we've trusted Christ. He's always there. The question is, how much of us does he have? Therein lies the choices. Father, we'll need your strength. We're weak. We're just a, a broken vessel. But Father, in your hands, that's the perfect one to have. For your light to shine through. To be filled with your love. That is shed on others. Ah, that will prove that we are your disciples. For they will know you are Christians by your love. That's what Jesus said. Father, take us and use us in our individual journeys. Each one of us has a different pathway this week where we'll serve, who we'll be in contact with. That's not by accident. We will come in contact with people that we'll never have seen or known before. Father, maybe it's just a word. Maybe it's a look. Maybe it's a gesture. Maybe it's a hand on their back. Maybe it's just a hug. Whatever it is, Father, use it to your glory to brighten and to lift and to bring them to Jesus Christ. We thank you for what you're going to accomplish. Because you are God and you are God alone. You are awesome in every way. Sovereign, rich and mighty. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.